Hello everyone, welcome back to Legends of Surgery. I'm your host, Tyler Rouse. With Halloween coming up, I thought I'd take on a topic that seems to fit with the spirit of the season. Some of you may have heard of leeching as part of medical practice in medieval times and earlier, or maybe the ancient use of maggots to clean wounds. But did you know that these critters and a number of other insects and arthropods not only played a role in history, but continue to do so, and some hold promise for future therapies? So let's explore some creepy crawlers and their roles in surgery in this episode of Legends of Surgery. The use of insects in medicine is called entomotherapy and has been around for millennia. I've mentioned the use of ants for closing wounds. The ancient Indian surgeon Sasruta, dating back to 500 BCE, described the technique in his writings like this. Quote, Large black ants have been applied to the margins of the wound, and their bodies then severed from their heads, after these have firmly bitten the part with their jaws, end quote. But let's start with one of the most common bugs used in both antiquity and modern times, the leech, also known as Herudo medicinalis, technically a segmented invertebrate. Did you know that the word leech is derived from the Anglo-Saxon word lace, L-A-E-C-E, which is literally translated to physician? The first recorded use of leeches in medicine comes from ancient Egypt, they can be seen in wall paintings that date back to the 18th dynasty pharaohs who ruled from 1567 to 1308 BCE. By the first century of the Common Era, medicinal use of leeches can be found in writings from around the world, including Chinese, Sanskrit, Persian, and Arabic literature. The Romans also used leeches for therapy and gave them the name Herudo. Initially, the Romans used them for rheumatic pains, gout, or fevers of any kind. Galen, the famous Roman physician whose ideas would dominate Western medicine for centuries, used leeches for bloodletting to balance the humors in the body. Avicenna, the famous Arabic medical writer from the Islamic Golden Age, covers leeches, stating in his Canon of Medicine that leeches drew blood from deeper sources than wet cupping, and he included several pages of instructions on how to properly use them. Of course, in the Middle Ages, the barber surgeons, see bonus podcast 3, continued to use leeches for bleeding patients. Interestingly, leeches were kept in special jars that became more and more ornate with time. I'll see if I can find some pictures for Twitter. Physicians would even carry a small number of them with them for house calls. Leeches were often used in areas where more painful methods of bleeding could not be used. For example, quite hemorrhoidal tumors, prolapsed rectum, and inflamed vulva, watching that they did not creep out of reach within any of the internal cavities as serious results might ensue, end quote. <gasps> the French, under Francois-Joseph-Victor Brousset, the head doctor at Val de Grasse Hospital in Paris and surgeon in Napoleon's Grand Army, who was described as the most sanguinary physician in history, took leeching to a new level. They became the therapeutic agent par excellence, prescribed for just about every malady and even inspired fashion. Some women wore imitation leech decorations and embroidered leech patterns on their dresses. In fact, leeching was so popular throughout Europe that the species became endangered. Some patients were prescribed up to 80 leeches per session. In 1833, to quote one year, 42 million leeches were imported to help with the annual consumption that reached nearly 100 million. In the U.S., where the local leech called Herudo decora was considered inferior, as the cuts it made were smaller and less deep and it drew less blood, the demand for European leeches outstripped supply, which led to a $500 reward offered to anyone who could breed European leeches in the United States. By the late 1800s, with the developments in medicine and surgery, as we certainly covered here in this podcast series, leeches had fallen out of favor. But they have made a resurgence in surgery, as they are used to help save tissues that are compromised by venous engorgement, typically following reconstructive microsurgery. Some examples include free and pedicled flaps, sort of like a full thickness skin graft, amputated digits, ears, and nasal tips. 
Leech saliva has some fascinating qualities, including an anticoagulant to keep blood from clotting, which has been named herudin, more on that in a minute, another called hyaluronidase, which allows the anticoagulant to spread throughout the wound by making the connective tissues more permeable, and antihistamines, which causes the blood vessels to open up, vasodilation. All of these act in concert to maximize the blood meal the leech can get from its victim. Herudin as a molecule was first isolated in 1950 by Fritz Marquardt in Germany. Although it is difficult to harvest in large quantities from leeches, it can be produced and purified in the lab, and there is now a number of herudin-based anticoagulant medications available. These can be used to prevent and treat postoperative venous thrombosis, blood clots, especially in cardiac surgery and in angioplasty, opening up the coronary arteries, and in plastic surgery. Not bad for a blood-sucking worm. And other blood-feeding insects like ticks, horseflies, and mosquitoes also inject a number of bioactive compounds into their prey to prevent clotting of the blood, offering up even more compounds to study as possible medications. Okay, so let's move on to our next creepy crawler, fly larvae, aka maggots. Not for the squeamish. But they have been used since antiquity for medical purposes, so let's explore that. It was long noticed that larvae would proliferate in infected wounds, with the oldest known reference coming from the Old Testament of the Bible. Military surgeons since ancient times noticed that wounds that had been left untreated for several days would become infected with maggots, but rather than making the wound worse, they actually healed better than wounds that weren't infected. A number of cultures around the world have made reference to intentionally allowing maggots to get into wounds, but it was Ambrose Paré, the French barber surgeon mentioned in the third bonus podcast, who was the first doctor to notice the beneficial effect of fly larvae for wounds. And Baron Dominique Jean Leray, surgeon to Napoleon's Grand Army, see podcast 47, observed during the army's invasion of North Africa and the Middle East that the maggots of the blue fly only removed dead tissue and had a positive effect on the remaining healthy tissue. During the American Civil War, the first recorded therapeutic use of maggots was performed by the surgeon John Fournay Zacharias. Here is his experience in his own words, quote, During my service in the hospital at Danville, Virginia, I first used maggots to remove the decayed tissue in hospital gangrene and with eminent satisfaction. In a single day, they would clean a wound much better than any agent we had at our command. I use them afterwards at various places. I'm sure I saved many lives by their use, escaped septicemia, and had rapid recoveries, end quote. The adoption of the germ theory and the understanding of infections made physicians hesitant to add contaminated material to open wounds, and larval therapy fell out of favor by the late 19th century. However, in World War I, mortality from open wounds increased by 70%. Remember, this was the era before antibiotics. In 1917, the military surgeon William S. Baer reported his treatment of open fractures and stomach wounds with maggots. He followed this up in 1929 as professor of orthopedic surgery at Johns Hopkins University. Quick side note, in 1900 as a general surgery resident, Bear organized the first orthopedic outpatient clinic at the invitation of Dr. William Halstead, see podcast 35, at the suggestion of Dr. Harvey Cushing, see podcast 42 and 43, under whom Bear had served his internship. He would go on to be the founding chairman of orthopedics at Johns Hopkins University. Anyways, Bear chose 21 patients with osteomyelitis that was difficult to treat. So osteomyelitis is an infection of the bone that can be very difficult to cure, nowadays requiring antibiotics, surgery, or both, with amputation being a last resort. So Bear exposed these patients' wounds to maggots that he initially raised in a hospital windowsill and found that after two months, all of the patients' wounds were healed. This became a popular treatment for osteomyelitis, but to overcome the ick factor and to keep them from migrating, a net cage bandage was invented to cover and hide the larvae. 
More than 300 U.S. hospitals introduced maggots into their wound healing programs between 1930 and 1940. By the mid-40s, the first antibiotics became widespread, and additional new antibiotics were introduced, greatly reducing the use of maggots. But by the 1990s, prospective controlled trials compared the use of maggots versus conventional therapies for decubitus ulcers, also known as pressure sores or bed sores. Interesting side note, decubitus comes from the Latin decumber, meaning to lie down. The study showed that larval therapy was far superior and maggots have had a renaissance. In 2005, the U.S. Food and Drug Administration approved maggots as a medical device. Today, the use of maggots to debride necrotic tissue is known as larval therapy, maggot debridement therapy, or biosurgery. Now, the current fly used is the green bottle fly, or Lucilia sericata. What makes this particular species useful medically is that it feeds exclusively on necrotic tissues, meaning it leaves the healthy tissue alone and is able to be bred and sterilized in vitro, allowing for commercial production. Interestingly, the larvae actually have antimicrobial properties, meaning they kill bacteria. This could be from a number of mechanisms, including the production of natural antibiotic-like agents, the modification of wound pH, and the ingestion and destruction of bacteria as part of the feeding process. They even secrete growth-promoting agents, which help the wound to heal rapidly. Finally, they help to eliminate and prevent the formation of biofilms. Quick note of explanation. A biofilm is when bacteria stick to each other in a slimy extracellular matrix, typically on surfaces like catheters and implanted medical devices, and on chronic wounds. The big problem with them is that antibiotics can't penetrate this film to get to the bacteria, nor can the body's natural defenses. The literature shows successful application of larval therapy for a wide variety of wounds, including pressure ulcers, diabetic ulcers, vascular ulcers, osteomyelitis, necrotizing fasciitis, aka flesh-eating disease, post-surgical wound infections, and burns. There are even reports of maggots being used in palliative care, meaning end of life, in tumors where surgical intervention is not possible because of anatomical location or because the patient is just too sick. One very interesting possibility in the use of maggot debridement therapy is disaster medicine. Considering the difficulty of assisting the injured in a timely fashion during a disaster, especially in low-income countries where resources may be quickly overwhelmed, necrosis and wound infections can be a major problem. Maggots can be used to remove necrotic and devitalized tissue, control wound infections, and help to stimulate wound healing, as well as prepare the wound bed for reconstructive surgery. Finally, with the rising risk of antibiotic-resistant bacteria such as MRSA, maggots may be a useful weapon. There is some evidence that it could be successful in difficult cases of MRSA infections. It's interesting to think that this ancient treatment may be helpful in a 21st century problem. Now, so that covers the use of two bugs in surgery. Let's move on to bug products rather than the bugs themselves. So one of the first things that comes to mind is silk suture. Silk dates back to ancient China with evidence going back to the 4th millennium BCE, then later spreading to the rest of the world through the Silk Road, though China maintained control of its production for centuries. It comes from the cocoon of the silkworm made by the larva of the domestic silk moth called Bombyx moray, which is Latin for silkworm of the mulberry tree, its primary food source. As far as I can tell, the first mention of silk used as suture is from Galen in the 2nd century CE, where he used it for sewing up the wounds of gladiators. But more recent development for silk is the use of spider silk. Since ancient Greece, spider webs have been used to rub into wounds, believing this prevented blood loss and infection. And there are a number of uses which may be relevant to surgery. Studies in animal models have shown that the threads can be used to repair torn tendons and nerves because of their very high tear resistance, tensile strength, elasticity, and particularly smooth surface. 
pound for pound, spider silk is stronger than steel, and the bundles of nerve fibers can grow up the threads. The most common type of spider use is the golden orb weavers. Now, another potential use includes sutures for ultra-fine stitching for delicate procedures like eye operations, acting as a scaffold for bone regeneration and as a molded material for damaged cartilage. I came across another very interesting bug product that has some curious potential. The venom of the Central American bark scorpion. Called margotoxin, it normally causes a painful sting that causes swelling and tingling. It works at the cellular level by blocking a potassium ion channel, which is a pore in the cell membrane that acts in cell signaling. This channel is also present on injured blood vessels, so scientists tested the toxin to see if it could reduce something called neointimal hyperplasia, which is a thickening of the internal lining of the blood vessel, narrowing the lumen causing it to get blocked. This type of injury is not uncommon in veins that have been harvested to use in coronary artery bypass grafts, aka cabbage operations. The idea would be to spray on the toxin to the vein itself after it's been removed and before it's sewn into the body to bypass blocked vessels. Finally, the last critter is another arthropod, but a rather big one and a very ancient one, the horseshoe crab. Considered living fossils, they haven't changed much since they first appeared around 450 million years ago. But it's their blood that we're interested in, and specifically the Atlantic horseshoe crabs. They don't have hemoglobin, but rather hemocyanin, which carries oxygen and makes their blood blue. They also don't have white blood cells like we do, but instead have what are called amoebocytes, which are cells that play a role in defending against infection. And they move around like amoeba, which is where the name comes from. These amoebocytes are used to make Lamollus amoebocyte lysate, or LAL, and here's where it's connected to surgery. This chemical reacts to a molecule found on gram-negative bacteria called bacterial endotoxin lipopolysaccharide. Now, since the 1970s, LAL has been used to test the sterility of surgical instruments and medical devices that contact blood or spinal fluid to make sure they're not contaminated by these gram-negative bacteria with a sensitivity that can detect endotoxins from them at concentrations as low as one part per trillion. So this includes things like pacemakers and joint replacements, but it is used even more widely than this, being required for every injectable drug certified by the FDA, as well as vaccines. And one more strange thing about this. Horseshoe crabs can't be farmed, so they're actually caught wild and their blood is harvested up to a third of the total volume, and then they're released back into the ocean. However, this isn't without its dangers to the crab, with mortality estimates from this procedure ranging from 3 to 30%, and as well the females that survive have reduced fertility. I feel like I'm ending all my recent episodes with public service announcements, but it's important to know that the horseshoe crab is considered vulnerable to extinction, which is one notch below endangered, partly due to habitat loss, but also from over-harvesting. It's estimated that 500,000 crabs are used to harvest blood every year, which has a value of $14,000 US per quart or 15,000 per liter. And there's no synthetic replacement yet available. So the loss of the horseshoe crab would also threaten modern medicine and surgery with extinction. And that may be the scariest thing I've said in this podcast. But the good news is that with habitat restoration and improved regulation of harvesting so they aren't removed during mating season, for example, and less are used as bait for eel and whelk fishing, we can keep these critters crawling for a long time to come. Well, that wraps up another episode of Legends of Surgery. I hope you enjoyed it. The next episode covers a surgical instrument that most people wouldn't give two thoughts about, the surgical stapler. But it has a very interesting history. I think you'll enjoy it.
In the meantime, please rate the podcast on iTunes and leave a comment there, or follow me on Twitter at Surgery Legends. Like us on Facebook at Legends of Surgery, or send an email to legendsofsurgery at gmail.com. I'd love to hear from you about your thoughts on the podcast, or ideas for future episodes, and as always, thanks for listening.